selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this extra special live episode of the Spiked podcast at the Battle of Ideas with an audience as well. I mean, I've got my back to most of them, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but we're still really pleased to have you here. Thank you all so much for, for coming to this. Um, I'm Fraser Myers, a deputy editor of Spiked and host of the Spiked podcast. Normally, Ella Whelan would be here with us, but she's just uh, given birth to a beautiful baby boy, so she will be on uh, maternity leave for the for the foreseeable. Um, but with me, as ever, Tom Slater, editor of Spiked, and we've got some extra special guests, GB News, Inaya Fuller and Iman. We've got Andrew Doyle, author of The New Puritans, and Paul Embry, author of Despised. Uh, so today, coming up on the show, we will be talking about... The turmoil, I think it's fair to call it, with the Liz Truss government. If the House of Cards of the trans lobby is about to fall with the scandals around mermaids and, of course, the tyranny of big tech. And then we'll be taking questions from you guys, the audience. So, you know, get your thinking caps on. Right. So I think it's fair to say this has not been the best week for uh, Liz Truss. <laughs> she's lost her chancellor. She's had to U-turn for the second time on one of the major planks of her kind of economic policy. I mean, Andrew, what have you made of that? Well, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng is the Lady Jane Grey of the Conservative Party. I, I feel very bad actually for him. But, you know, that's the f what four chancellors within the year. I mean, it really doesn't look good. Um, and I, Im I imagine this is the inevitable thing that happens when, when politicians are largely driven by careerism uh, rather than vocation, because then you end up with power grabs and it becomes delightfully Shakespearean, doesn't it? Mm. And of course, now we've got people talking about how they're going to plot to install Penny Mordaunt and uh, Rishi Sunak. I mean, it's not quite the level of Hamlet, but it is it is interesting, isn't it? So, um, uh, and all of this backstabbing, you know, we've had Boris Johnson who was ousted in this very sort of dramatic way. Um, so I don't know what the future is now for Liz Truss. I mean, she started out getting all these plaudits for saying actually conservative things, which people didn't 
expect from a conservative leader. Um, but <laughs> what good is it if uh, she's just going to uh, fall apart in this sort of catastrophic way and not stick to her guns and, you know, say that she's not for turning and then immediately turn mm. uh, and and continually change her mind. And then you've got Kwarteng saying, well, no, I'm here for the long haul. Next day he's gone. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 just an absolute mess. And I, I don't think the voters are going to respond well to this. And, and Tom, I mean, it hasn't every aspect of her authority just been shot. She doesn't have the support of her party. Mm. You know, she's um, lost the confidence of the markets, which we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to later. Um, she doesn't even have her programme intact anymore. No, and it's been less than five weeks. Mm. I think it's fair to say, like, there are things in my fridge that are older than Liz Truss's <laughs> premiership, and they might outlast her at this mm. particular rate. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, at this point, I think she's got something like 9% of the country are behind her, which, as Matt Goodwin has pointed out, is um, Prince Andrew territory, which is <laughs> a place that no one really wants to be. I mean, we'll get into the points about the markets and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. Um, and there was a fair amount of kind of hysteria in response to that mini budget as incoherent um, and as obviously unpopular with the public as it was. Uh, but at the same time, I think this comes down to taking the public for granted. She almost tried to make a virtue out of the fact that she was pushing unpopular policies, mm. obviously wasn't going to go for a general election. I mean, we've now ended up with essentially an unelected new PM in the form of Jeremy Hunt completely ripping up the agenda. But I think it is just a lesson that even if you are going to try and do something different, that's even almost more important that you have people behind you. And she definitely didn't have that. Yeah, no, that's the problem, isn't it? She's just lacking, she's lacking the public support for quite a big change in what she wants to do. Yeah, and I mean, the polls reflect it. I mean, it's now extraordinary numbers uh, for the Conservative Party in terms of popular uh, support. But, you know, whilst I've been very critical of Liz Truss, I mean, the way that it has happened is, is quite uh, shocking. There was this very intense, you know, vitriolic attack against her within the Conservative Party. And if they are unhappy with her, you know, leadership, um, then they can change the rules or perhaps I mean that's some of the things that they want to do some people are arguing it's anti-democratic because they want to lock out many of the, the the Tory members but she did win you know fair and square and I do think there are kind of bigger questions undoubtedly that mini budget has spooked the market and so mm. on and so forth and she hasn't necessarily taken the public along but we also have to remember the kind of conditions to which she you know rose in the first place you know Boris Johnson you know unfortunately was not meeting the challenges um, that was and the mandate that was given to him in, in 2019 and, and all of the kind of chaos that ensued uh, around that. So what it has really revealed is that we just have a fundamental kind of crisis of political leadership in this country and it's the public that are locked out and are just effectively bystanders in their own democracy. And Paul, you know, these are some of the ideas that Trust wanted to implement. They're very unpopular. I'm sure you wouldn't agree with them, um, you know, coming from the kind of Labour left or not the Labour left, but from the Labour Party. Um, isn't it also still worrying that the markets have got this power to essentially say no to, you know, a prime minister who really should be got rid of by us if we don't like her? It is worrying. And I think if, if I had a direct line to Keir Starmer, I would be saying, look, just be very careful about praying in aid. Uh, bodies like the IMF, mm. um, who I think should be winding their necks in. I don't think that a, a kind of pro-globalisation institution like that, which has always been, whose, whose values have always been inimical to, to left values for many, many years. And when you look at the, what the IMF has done to, to some of the poorer economies in the world over the years, um, suddenly I'm seeing people on the left say, oh, but the IMF are saying this and they must be right. And it's a reason to kick the Tories and the markets have been spooked. And that's another reason to kick the Tories. I mean, my view is on its own terms, I think Kwarteng's mini budget was wrong. 
Um, I think it was uh, unethical. Uh, I think it was divisive. I think it set all of the wrong priorities. But the the left should be taking that argument on, on its own terms. The left should not be relying on markets and supranational unelected Mm. bureaucrats and institutions such as the the IMF to to use that as an opportunity to, to bash the Tories. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's, that's disturbing. And uh, to see people clamor to, to that argument on the left, I think is, is wrong. Cause there will come a, if I just say this, there will come a point, um, where a Labour government will be elected at some time in the future. Uh, and there could be a Labour government with a kind of radical, expansive economic program. If anyone thinks that, the markets and the IMF and institutions like that are not going to react in a similar way. You know, there might not be the driving down of the pound and, and the market reaction, then, then they're in dreamland. And, and if you're giving credibility to, to those institutions and the markets now, then you're making yourself a bit of a hostage to fortune on the left. I yeah, think. Their view seems to be that austerity is the only credible route, um, you know, a, a chancellor can take. Tom, should we talk a little bit about the new chancellor and what this represents? Is this kind of the revenge of the sort of blancmange wing of the Tory party? Well, seemingly so. I mean, the thing about Jeremy Hunt is there's all sorts of things that people will rightly upbraid him for, positions he's taken, things that he did while, I, while he was in the... In, whilst, whilst he was Secretary of State for Health and all the rest of it. But he's also such a creature of the sort of blob that we all thought we'd started to kick back against. I mean, mm-hmm. there's this famous kind of story from people who used to work with him that he said, well, I suppose I'll become a Tory MP because my parents were Tories and all mm-hmm. the rest of it. And that's that kind of form of professional politician who just exists within this cosy consensus that they agree with uh, because they have to agree with it and they just go along and all the rest of it. And I find his ascension really has to be the kind of the final nail in the coffin really is to this um, particular iteration of the Conservative Party being something a little different and a little more interesting. I think it is worth remembering that just three years ago, something very fascinating happened. Um, I didn't vote for this government, but I still think them winning was a fantastically positive thing as far as it got Brexit over the line. And also it knocked back a Labour Party that thought that it could take um, what was its base for granted. Uh, the Tory party did have this opportunity to carve out this whole new constituency for itself. It did have a double-digit poll lead amongst working-class mm. voters and all the rest of it. And it's thrown it all away, first for this tragic Thatcher tribute act, and now Jeremy Hunt. Surely <laughs> this is the end point of this one, regrettably. Andrew, what do you, what do you th- make of Jeremy what? Hunt? Oh, not much. Um, <laughs> I think they... speak well, highly I, of you. No, but, <laughs> To be clear, I don't know him personally. I'm sure he's a, lo- a lovely human being. But the point is, um, they missed a trick with uh, Kemi Badenoch, I think. Yeah. And, you know, like, wouldn't it have been interesting if they actually took a risk on someone who was saying things that resonated with the public? And all of the polling was suggesting this. And, uh, you know, w- but yet we're back to the same old, same old. That's the problem is they always revert to this. And whether it's just because they're in their cosy bubble and they're just sort of looking out for their mates, I don't know. But, you know, they had a real opportunity to sort of uh, change the direction, do something fascinating in British politics. And um, yes, it was a risk because she wasn't as experienced as some of the other candidates. But nevertheless, it would have been a, a really interesting move for the Tories to make. And I think it would have yielded dividends. But uh, no, they're just going for the uh, the old safe route and it's not going to work, I don't think. Yeah. And Inaya, what about Labour? I mean, they're obviously riding very high, high in the polls, you know, more than 30 points ahead in, in quite a lot of them. Is that because people have learned to love Keir Starmer or is it just the chaos in the Tories? Yeah, I, I do think it is a lot to do with the chaos of the Tories. I mean, you know, lo- looking at 
key Starmer's Labour Party, it's hardly a kind of transformational, kind of radical vision to, to transform the country, but it is the point that we're back to that same question again. You know, do we pick the lesser of two evils? Do we just vote for the one party because we're absolutely exhausted with the other party? I mean, that's not exactly, you know, the kind of thriving um, democratic life that we want. And I think, you know, just touching upon the point that um, Andrew made, I mean, it, it, it was in many ways so easy, you know, in 2019. I think the mandate that was given in terms of taking back control Control, you know, the questions around the Red Wall and those kind of communities that had um, had entrenched levels of social deprivation for a whole generation and, and reviving democratic life, it, it, was, it was there. And reverting to type is effectively what we've seen. And, and talking of reverting to type, Paul, can Labour stop itself reverting to type? I mean, one of the big controversies this week has been over Eddie Izzard standing as mm -hmm. an MP. And I'm sure you have some views on that. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, in terms of, in terms of Labour, look, it's, it's, it's perfectly possible, I think, that Labour now could, could win the next election in a way that people just wouldn't have anticipated a couple of years ago. If that does happen, I suspect it will be something a bit like the... Uh, the Australian election where a Labour government is returned but didn't particularly inspire anybody, was yeah. just seen as the, the best of, of a bad bunch, really. And if, if Labour gets over the line in this country, um, then possibly that will be the reason why. Because I, I think that at a, a, a cultural level, at a political level, I don't think the Labour Party has reconnected in any serious way with the people whose, whose votes, particularly people in the Red Wall constituencies, you know, traditionally working class loyal Labour voters who have become so um, alienated by the party and in many respects just just hate the party now. And I don't think they look at the party and think, oh, suddenly you are all back now in touch with me, you're speaking my language, you're sharing my priorities. I think Starmer, to his credit, has probably done some good things to, 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 to try to move that reconnection forward. But ultimately, I think the, the, the party is still some distance from, from those voters. Um, what I, I find, just touching on the previous point, the, the, the Tories, as, as Tom said, have just completely squandered this political legacy in those Red Bull constituencies. Mm. I mean, when, when Trust came to power, I could not believe that she was reverting to this Thatcherite agenda. Because when you think the reason why they won those Red Bull constituencies, yes, Brexit was a big part of it. But it was also things like the levelling up agenda. Yeah. You know, we will play a greater role in your life. We will help to regenerate your communities, invest, bring jobs and all the rest of it. And, and then Trust said, no, no, forget all that. Effectively, we're going to Thatcherite roll back the frontiers of the state, low tax, low regulation, the very things that created such dispossession in those communities in the 80s, you know, the legacy of deindustrialization, or the social problems that went with that. And I, I thought, you know, when she, I thought at the very least when she was elected, okay, this is a return to ideology again. The battle lines are drawn. And as Tony Benn always used to say, look, in politics, you have signposts and weather vanes. The mm. signposts are the people who say that this is where we should go, follow me. The weather vanes are the people who say, listen to what the focus groups say and follow them. I thought at first trust was going to be a signpost, but it turns out we've seen now she's actually a weather vane. So ideology seems to have gone again. But it's also like, you know, it's not as if people are born with their views. I think there was a desire for something a bit different as well, with a kind of break with Labour in some of those places. You also had a lot of people who, the, the voters that really made the difference, uh, both with the Brexit vote and since, are a lot of people who hadn't voted for a very long time as well. So these are people who would really disaffected. And I think for a long time, there was a kind of bristling against Labour as well as it, it, the kind of limits of it, the feeling mm. like it didn't meet people's aspirations. It was incredibly downbeat, subsistence, welfare is about the most that we can possibly give you. And so there was a kind of argument that could have been made. I don't think it would have been particularly successful for the reason Paul has made in relation to trustonomics, but she could have tried to make it 
I mean, she just m- delivered the mini budget. The uh, markets went haywire and then she locked herself in number 10 for about five days. That's a strange kind of conviction if it's mm. just held behind a black lacquered door. You know, it's not actually going out there and making any kind of argument. It's better than a fridge, but, mind you, which is what Boris Johnson wants. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about the fridge. <laughs> Back to fridges. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Let's move on to talk about mermaids. I mean, this um, charity, the, the charity for trans youth as it bills itself, has been rocked by another scandal. There seems to be a new one every every couple of days. The the most recent involving their digital engagement officer, um, shown to have been uh, in, involved in sort of pornographic photo shoots, um, pictures of himself on Instagram. Um, in Themself. Uh, Themself, sorry, sorry. No misgendering on this, on the, on this show. Um, Themselves in a, in a schoolgirl skirt. I mean, that comes off the back of this, um, one of their trustees um, giving a conference to a sort of paedophile aid event, as it's been described. Then there's been concerns raised about child safeguarding, children being sent binders against their parents' will, allegedly, um, people being given an advice to take puberty blockers, them being safe and irreversible. I mean, Inaya, this is this has all been kind of rumbling on for a long time, but mm. the dam seems to have finally burst on this issue. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think hopefully, you know, you, you do wonder what will really break the dam across all aspects of the questions around gender ideology. I mean, we've seen, you know, detransitioners at, you know, a very young age who have had these kind of irreversible effects on their body, you know, even infertility. And it is extraordinary that even that has not necessarily 
woken up um, the political class in, in the sense of urgency around these issues. And there's still so much sensitivity um, around discussing it. We had the CAS review. So we really do hope. But one of the things that's really frustrating still about this conversation, because I had a debate about this um, very recently, is the way that because when you talk about safeguarding and things like that, um, oftentimes advocates of gender ideology try and associate it with the way that um, gay people were talked about mm. um, in the 80s and so on. And it is completely different. You know, obviously, being gay is something that um, is to do with your kind of sexuality, who you love, um, consenting adults. This is oftentimes in relation to mermaids, to do with children yeah. uh, making huge uh, decisions. So we hope that this will be another thing um, that will really raise this to the top of the political agenda. And, and Andrew, what do you make of the way this issue has been kind of conflated with gay rights? And, you know, if you're a good person, you will just agree to whatever the kind of trans lobby says. Well, that's why uh, the uh, gender identity ideology has risen so sharply is that people don't want to be caught out in the way they were caught out back in the day, mm. where they were proved to be on the wrong side of history. And of course, activists always say that they're on the right side of history. But it is so wrong. It's so backward. It's 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 a hundred percent backward, actually, because uh, the gay rights movement uh, achieved its aims. Uh, through persuasion, debate, process, all of uh, protest, all of these kind of things. It never said we're going to take away other people's rights. It never said we're going to force you on pain of being arrested uh, to use the words that we want you to use. Mm. None of this ever happened. It wasn't that it wasn't an illiberal movement. But more seriously than that, the current uh, gender identity ideology in its current form is responsible for this huge wave of homophobia. It has rehabilitated ancient homophobic tropes in a really severe and extreme way. So you have phrases like uh, 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 genital preferences are transphobic. Um, mm. The CEO of Stonewall, Nancy Kelly, has compared lesbians who don't want to sleep with men to sexual racists. Uh, that is the equivalent to what they used to say back when I was a kid, you know, uh, that lesbians just haven't found the right guy yet or that gay men haven't found the right girl. This is what is happening now. And it's if you don't believe me, there are all sorts of websites that collate together the extreme homophobia of trans activists, the extreme language. They talk about how AIDS was a brilliant thing because it got rid of faggots. They are really, really extreme with this stuff. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these. It isn't just, I know you can find anything on, on Twitter if you search for it, but there are on, on just it, waves of this hatred against gay people. There is now undeniably a conflict between gay rights and the idea of gender self-identification because gay rights were secured on the recognition of the biological sex differences that we all know are true. If you negate that, there's no such thing as gay rights anymore. It's very, very serious. So I think um, we need to, I, I think for a start, gay people need to organize and not be com yoked with one of the most homophobic movements that has ever existed. How about that for a start? You know, mm. Stonewall made this awful decision to go from LGB to LGBT or rather LGBTQIA+, or whatever variation they want to use of that initialism. They redefined on their website and promotional materials the word homosexual, and they now say that means same gender attracted. Mm. And that is not what it means. And this is so embedded in all levels of government, civil service, quangos, uh, local authorities. We recently had the Royal Borough of Greenwich sending out an la inclusive language guide which warned people against uses, using words such as he or him. But more than that, said that um, the Equality Act is uh, defending gender identity. And then it says in brackets what the Equality Act calls sex. In other <laughs> words, it is misrepresenting the law, explicitly lying about the law. And that is not just being sent out by Royal Borough of Greenwich. It's now being sent to parents and teachers at schools. That's how deeply this rot has set in. So we need someone in the government to reestablish what the law actually is. 
and to stop indoctrinating children into this very dangerous, harmful and homophobic ideology. And in terms of um, sort of bringing it back to the question of, of children, you know, many of the whistleblowers at the Tavistock Clinic, which is the now being shut down, but it was the, it was this sort of specialist gender identity clinic for children. Many of them were saying, you know, these, a lot of these children are going to grow up gay. Well, no, we are, I we mean, are transing away the gay. We know that all the studies show conclusively that gender nonconformity in youth is a really reliable predictor of homosexuality in later life. It's not an exact science and you should never assume the sexual orientation of any child, of course. But we just know that the majority of those kids, boys who uh, don't like playing football, might like wearing dresses, girls who uh, like football and more traditionally masculine pursuits, they're most of the time just, they just grow up gay. That's all it is. A lot of the people who were being referred to the Tavistock were also autistic. And there was a, a recorded and, and very clear correlation between autism and feelings of gender dysphoria, right? So there was even a dark joke at the Tavistock clinic. The staff themselves were saying soon there'll be no gay people left, mm. right? The whistleblowers were saying that a lot of the parents who brought their kids to that, that clinic were, were homophobes. They didn't like the fact that they had a gay kid. And what, what they did is they effectively uh, uh, fast-tracked kids onto puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and eventually surgery to fix gay kids, to heterosexualize mm. them. This is what they do in Iran, by mm. the way. Mm. Tom, none of these things, none of what Andrew has just laid out there is secret. Mm -hmm. um, none of it has just come out yesterday. Um, people have been raising the alarm for years now. Why has it taken so long for people to, you know, wake up and smell the coffee? I think it's because we live in an age in which to appear on the right side of history is more important than actually being genuinely virtuous. Like it's better to virtue signal than actually mm. be a virtuous individual. I mean, the Tavistock is a fascinating example because it was something like three dozen clinicians had resigned um, in protest essentially over the course yeah. of the years that it was there. Um, concerns were being raised pretty much from day dot at that particular institution about all the things that Andrew has been talking about. They were in effect kind of experimenting on children. These drugs that they said were reversible and absolutely fine and all the rest of it, it's been become abundantly clear that that wasn't the case. And even this approach of kind of socially affirming gender, you know, essentially taking a child at their word when they say that they believe themselves to be a, a, a different sex and this is my new name and et cetera, can have really profound psychological impacts, which is why surely any kind of common sense approach would be to try and talk to the child, try mm. to work out what's going wrong. Could this be something else? Um, if fact, when you hear mermaids who are very instrumental in um, lobbying for the kind of approach that the Tavistock took, they said, uh, we can't let the psychological concerns get away in the medical intervention. It has yeah. to be medical, medical, medical. And I think it's it's so striking because whether we want to call it, whether we're talking about gender ideology or woke ideology or kind of broader atmosphere of political correctness, is that what presents itself as wanting to advocate on behalf of the most vulnerable in society will happily throw the most vulnerable people imaginable in society, troubled children, mm. under the bus to the services of their ideology or other sensible people will happily look the other way because they don't want to be called a name. Yeah. And that has to stop, not just in relation to this particular issue, but all kinds of other ones in which ideology and a very pernicious ideology gets in the way of actually what's going on. Paul, what have you made of this? Well, I never cease to be amazed at how a, a small but very vocal band of people have managed to, to force our major corporations, people in public life, political parties and so on, to adopt so much of an agenda, which I think mainstream Britain is left scratching its head at. You know, I, I, think, I think the general view of people in this country, certainly people I meet, is, look, of course we should be compassionate. Of course we 
you know, we, we need to, to respect people and if they choose to live their lives in a certain way or whatever they choose to wear, you know, within the, within the parameters of, of the law, good luck to them. I think that's the view of most people. Good luck to them. However, when that same group of people says, but actually we want the law to change in order to accommodate our demands and we want access to single sex spaces, for example. And if you don't agree with our agenda, then, you know, you could be arrested and rightly mm. so. Then I think the whole thing becomes absolutely sinister. Um, and it's almost like I think the whole, the whole thing, there's been an overreach, I think, because I think until a few years ago, the view of most people in this country was, okay, you know, the, the trans agenda doesn't really trouble us. There's a, a small number of trans people around, you know, let's, let's kind of indulge them. Let's, let's you know, be compassionate and, and so on. When I think the, the trans lobby uh, pushed and pushed and pushed and their demands became even more unreasonable, that's the point, I think, at which mainstream Britain and ordinary people went, no, we're now pushing back against this. You know, we, we were accommodating, but you're going too fast. Some of the demands are excessive and we're now pushing back against it. And I think we're seeing that now. I think slowly but surely we're seeing a bit of a, a, a pushback because it does, it leaves people scratching their heads. And, you know, I, I think... Also, the, the, the truth is, as compassionate as we do want to be to people, you, you can't subvert science and you yeah. can't subvert biology. We wouldn't stand for that approach in any other walk of life. We wouldn't say, okay, let's put science aside because, you know, we want to put feelings before facts. Uh, and I don't believe we should, we should do it in this case. And, you know, as a, as a husband and the father of a 12-year-old daughter, uh, some people sometimes say to me, well, you've got no interest in this. You know, you, you shouldn't really be part of the debate. Well, actually, you've got women in your family you will want to be part of the debate and I'll certainly not apologise for that. And, and that's the point, isn't it? It, it affects everyone and it asks all of us to question <laughs> yeah. our own genders as well, not just, you know, for people who are you're questioning that. No, absolutely. And I just wanted to pick up on the point that there is not just one way to be compassionate because I do mm. think that there is a lot of kind of emotional uh, blackmail that goes on in this conversation. I mean, one of the frequent phrases that is used, I'd rather have a, a trans child than a dead child. And I mean, that is... I would argue morally objectionable to suggest that these are the only two options when there are not only two options. We're talking yeah. about children that Andrew rightfully mentioned may have other um, issues going on and there may be other routes that could actually lead to a much happier outcome. So irreversible one-way pathway onto medical treatment is not necessarily the most compassionate response. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. And one of the things that, you know, we've sort of touched on a little bit is that there is um, a kind of censorship around this issue. Uh, there's an official censorship in terms of, you know, what the law does. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a kind of cultural censorship where of you can't say that. And there's a cancel culture going, going around this. But we should talk a little bit, a bit about how big tech deals with this because, you know, Maya Forstato has been very significant and quite instrumental in um, raising the debate on these issues has essentially been suspended from Twitter. Mm-hmm. Tom, do you want to say a bit about this? Yeah, so she was drawing attention to this latest scandal, which was this person who was working at Mermaids who had um, posted all of these pornographic photos. for Just for reposting them, she was the subject of one of these kind of seemingly kind of coordinated uh, reporting attacks that you see go on. They were suggesting she was posting nudes and all the rest of it mm. and therefore it, someone else's and therefore it had to be taken down. She's done a good, a good post about that and all of her reasoning. But it, it does remind us that I think the gender critical feminists were one of the sort of canaries in the coal mine when it came to big tech censorship. I remember um, Megan Murphy, um, Canadian feminist, a good few years ago now, who was kicked off um, for calling an individual um, who turned out to, who was going around tanning salons, called him him and has been kicked off of Twitter ever since. Um, Twitter has a pretty stringent um, misgendering policy. All sorts of people have been affected by that. And it just as you were sort of alluding to, Fraser, you stack that next to uh, the women who've been visited by the police mm. um, for voicing their views on the internet, in some cases dragged through the courts as well. This isn't just kind of one harrowing experience. It's something that we've seen time and time again. Is that I think this gender ideology, it needs censorship to survive. Yeah. Because it cannot mm. withstand any scrutiny or any kind of contact with reality. And I think what we've seen in recent months is the whole edifice has started to crumble. It's because they've been pushed into arenas in which that game doesn't work. So you had a couple of these tribunals, my mm. Forstatter, Alison Bailey, where they're on, where these individuals are on the stand. They've got to defend their points of view and they can't. They literally, in one case, reach for their support animal rather than actually answer straight questions. <laughs> and, so, and I believe they had their mother as well. At the, yeah. <laughs> at incredible, incredible scenes. And this is what we're seeing as well. Or so, even something like the... Um, the Cass Review, which again, uh, this Hillary Cass, a very respected paediatrician, does this report that we've uh, referenced um, in relation to the Tavistock. Just if, as soon as someone sensible just looks at the evidence, it mm. all falls apart. You can't say no debate in that context. You can't say no debate when you're being cross-examined in a tribunal yeah. or a courtroom. And I think what we're seeing is that's why free speech is so important because mm. uh, unchallenged orthodoxies can be incredibly pernicious, but also that this particular ideology just can't withstand it. And that's part of the reason it's unravelling now, definitely. And unfortunately, social media companies can say to us, no debate as things stand. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the companies that's been in the spotlight um, quite a lot recently has been PayPal. And people may have seen um, in the past week or so, they uh, released a kind of a new policy talking about how they're essentially going to dock $2,500 for people who spread misinformation. Um, Andrew, what have you made of this? I mean, they've walked it back, obviously, yeah. because it's insane. Well, but were they just testing the waters? Uh- <laughs> Well, you say it's insane, uh, but the things that we thought were insane 10 years ago are now reality. And Mm. so I should imagine this is just the next step, right? So uh, in terms of cancel culture, it's not going to be just about contacting people's employers and getting them fired or harassing them online or sending them rape and death threats, which is the typical uh, method. Uh, It's now going to be denying people financial services. And what next? Homes, houses? I mean, what do they want? They want people who have, uh, you know, 
uh, unorthodox opinions uh, to be homeless, uh, to, 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 to die effectively. I mean, is the, is the, this is the, the extremity of this stuff. And I think it's really, really pernicious, but in particular, the big tech are doing this. You know, the, the, these people wield unbelievable clout. Uh, you know, it's essentially a plutocracy. They, and they can decide what the parameters of acceptable thought and speech are. And it's not just that they kick off Twitter. I mean, that's not the end of the world. I quite like it, to be honest. But if the, but, but, <laughs> Get more work done. Yeah, I definitely would. Uh, when I've arguments with anime avatars all the time but i mean <laughs> i'd say um but, but you know but losing my bank account mm. losing the way that i can you know just buy groceries i mean that you know it's it's extreme and of course it happened to the free speech union and again yeah they backtracked but then they announced these extra stringent measures in terms of censorship so i don't trust this backtracking i think it's that thing about you know when uh, authoritarians they push you so far and then they get a bit of resistance and they back away. And then they come back again and push you a little further. I know Jordan Peterson's talked about this, that this is the sort of way that these things creep on. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So this is just going to be, I, I know this is going to happen again and again. It's going to get worse. PayPal banning the free speech union is sort of a, surely that's a Rubicon cross, do you think? Free <laughs> well, I mean, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we were told that it was only going to be you know, COVID-19 so-called misinformation and so on. And it does show how quickly uh, the boundaries of what is and isn't acceptable get um, mm. defined and, and, and narrowed. But it also just shows you um, the deeply anti-democratic nature um, of this ideology. Because, I mean, the Free Speech Union is still a relatively small organisation, but it is connected. It can kind of make demands and rally people to... to, to you know, counter some of this, but most ordinary people, you know, engaging in what is normal, reasonable political conversation about these big issues that we all care about that are being debated don't have that ability. Mm. So to just remove them is to effectively unperson them and get rid of um, huge sections of the population from engaging in, in general public life. And that, that seems to me to be uh, what they want to achieve, which is to completely cordon off sub certain subjects um, from democratic scrutiny and impose a particular agenda. And we're seeing that very much in Scotland, um, many debates around uh, gender, the way that many feminists have been you know, investigated by the police and so on. The Gender Recognition Act is being forced through against many of the polls of Scottish people. And there has been discussions about effectively criminalising uh, strong disagreement mm. with, with gender ideology in relation to the hate crime bill. So this is a very big reality. It's not just a in people's imagination. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole sort of nexus of, of, of sort of censorship. I mean, sticking with a uh, big tech for the moment, Paul, what do you make of this argument? You know, often when you say, oh, you know, Twitter shouldn't have banned Donald Trump or PayPal shouldn't have banned the Free Speech Union, people will then say, oh, but they're a, they're a company in a market. Don't they have the right, you know, people have violated their terms. What do you make of that? Well, I think when, when these big tech companies have such a monopoly, Actually, I, I think there is, and I'm not instinctively a, a person who says that, you know, the, the state should get involved in free speech issues. But I think when you look at the fact that so much of the world and so many of us now do conduct or express ourselves through these mediums, um, when one of those big tech companies, and it's more than one, as we know, says, well, no, we're going to arbitrarily, because we don't like your view, shut you down, then I think probably governments do have the right to, to have a point of view about that. And particularly when it comes to, as Andrew says, they, you know, in this country, they might not throw you in a police cell for, for saying the wrong thing, although that does sometimes happen, as we know. But when they can literally stop people from functioning in their everyday lives, yeah. um, 
they can deperson you or an organization, a business is, is stopped from operating because it's deemed to have the wrong views. I don't think we can just sit by and say, well, there's no role for the, for the state in, in those situations. We, we shouldn't get, uh, we shouldn't get involved at all. Um, and it, it goes back to this ridiculous idea that there's, there's an orthodoxy, you know, there, there's on, on, Particularly contentious issues. There's an orthodoxy. There's uh, there, there's an, a, an appropriate position, mm. uh, and if you, as a business or as an organisation, as an individual, don't subscribe to that, um, then you are in some way unclean. Uh, and all someone has to say is, "I'm offended by that view," and it's almost like it's a clincher in debate. You know, yeah. the debate should go no further because someone has has, has you know voiced their offence at it. And I honestly think, Fraser, I think there's an awful lot of cowardice out there. I think people, I think you touched on it, Tom. People are absolutely petrified of being called nasty names because mm. you know they've expressed the wrong view. And what I find on on you know on the gender debate that we were just talking about. I mean, I, I've got a fascinating life. I go to lots of trade union conferences and labour movement meetings and whatever. It's, it's great fun, I promise you. Um, <laughs> and I often get people coming up to me and saying, you know, of course your position is absolutely, they'll say, you know, under their breath, of course your position is absolutely right. You know, this agenda is absolute nonsense. And I have to say to people, we'll say it then, because if it's yeah. only a couple of people saying it and everyone else is keeping their head below the parapet, then things are not going to change or not going to change as quickly as they ought to. Um, so that level of cowardice in public life, I think we've got to we've got to chivvy people and force people to start speaking up because it's like anything. I mean, I, you know, I've got huge respect for the women, um, the feminists, the gender critical women who, who slowly but surely came out of their shell and said, actually, we're not putting up with this. We're going to challenge this. And they knew there was a big personal risk to them, mm. but they haven't gone away. Uh, and I think we've got a duty to, to stand by those women. I think we've got a duty to stand by the, the Free Speech Union because this actually goes to the heart of what it is to be a democratic society, I think. Tom, the, the line between sort of corporations and the state actually is not as clear cut mm. as some people would make out. Often it isn't just, you know, tech going off on one. Sometimes there is a, a sort of, it's being almost pushed by government actors to do this censorship. I think that's exactly true. I mean, you see it most explicitly in America, I think it's fair to say, in recent years, particularly with how the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story played out during the last election, which as we've now found out, because um, so, first of all, there was always something, obviously, there was a bad smell around that particular instance anyway, because this story lands this big explosive New York Post expose, very embarrassing for the Bidens, of course. Mm. And it's in, there's basically this clamour from essentially former heads of the security services. They'll publish open letters. They say, this is Russian disinformation. This yeah. needs to be clamped down upon. And naturally it does. That in, in and of itself is quite sinister and authoritarian. But what we've learned since is that the FBI actually paid Facebook, one of the platforms that suppressed this story, a visit before it landed and said, you know, we're, get, we're getting the sense that something's coming and you need to be on your, on your watch for it. There's also in America a real revolving door between Silicon Valley and the Democratic Party in particular. Mm. So at what point does this become a kind of fusion of the power of big tech and the power of the state in that particular instance? It's really, really slippery. It's really, really sinister. And I think it completely gives the lie to the idea that this is just, you know, a company deciding to make this particular position. That's one thing that's probably not fully appreciated in big tech censorship is it's incredibly powerful. Um, it's incredibly authoritarian. Uh, you can't just dismiss it as not a free speech issue because it doesn't involve the state directly or whatever. But at the same time, they've been quite reluctant censors in many yeah. respects. I mean, even up until a few years ago, 
you could tell that Mark's, the last thing Mark Zuckerberg when these people wanted to do was to get into the role of deciding what is real, what is false, mm. what is right, what is wrong. You know, even a couple of years ago, he was defending having Holocaust denial on Facebook because he didn't want Facebook to be the Ministry of Truth. That went out the window <laughs> very particularly quickly. But I guess what I'm getting at is they've been egged on into this position. Yeah. And it's not just by the state instantly, it's also by the left yeah. who seem to now see the power of corporate America as their greatest ally in pursuit of justice, mm. which is the most bizarre state of affairs, I think. Well, yeah, that's what, I wanted to, <laughs> you know. that's what I wanted to ask you about, Andrew. I mean, why is it, why is the left so in favour of this? Why, why do they see well, their own positions reflected in the boardrooms of Silicon Valley? Because they agree. I mean, that's just as simple as that. You know, they're, they're, they're against censorship unless it's uh, censorship of views they don't like. You know, it's, it's quite clear. I mean, yeah, there is something utterly perverse about uh, left-wing activists cheering on multi-billion dollar corporations. <laughs> But there's something very, very, it's incoherent, isn't it? It doesn't make any sense at all. But of course, you know, uh, ethical trends shift. And at some point, uh, it's not inconceivable that the, uh, that big tech will be in lockstep over different views, views that may be, I and mean, they have in fact, uh, kicked off left-wing groups, hmm. haven't they? They've, they, they, you know, it has affected them as well. It isn't just the case that it's just a certain type of view. Um, so people need to be very wary. You need to just apply the principle, uh, broadly that, that, you know, Big tech shouldn't be censoring people for their opinions full stop. And that way you protect yourself. It's always the case that activists push for uh, constraints on free speech and they don't realise you, you can never anticipate where that's going to go. I mean, if you take after the Battle of Cable Street, for instance, it was the Labour government that really pushed for these public order acts. And who did those acts mostly affect in later years? It was the left. It was the striking miners. It, you know, it was, you know, it, it, it will always come back and bite you. So, I, you know, free speech has to be for everyone. No, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, I mean, I just would, would echo those points that, you know, far from you know authoritarian progressivism championing the marginalised, it's mm. very much the, the very thing um, that locks them out of public life. And it really does demonstrate that this ideology is is the kind of governing ideology of, of the political class at this point, because at all elements of, of the cultural, political and, and media elites almost. This this is the ideology that is pushed. Corporations, um, you know, the arts and cultural <coughs> sector, um, and so on and so forth. And I think that it, it without a kind of re-arguing of the, the values of freedom and democracy, as you have to kind of keep doing in each generation, this will continue to go this way. Well, hopefully that call for freedom and democracy and arguing for it has inspired some questions out in the <laughs> audience. Very slick segue. Uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> so hands up if you've got a question. Someone over there. Um, there isn't a mic, so you've got to shout, shout. and I'll repeat your question. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for the audience at home, <laughs> we had a question and we had a comment and a question. The comment was, we don't understand what's the appeal of Jeremy Hunt. What's What dirt has he got? <laughs> on all the other politicians to still be in power. He's a rubbish health secretary. And the question was, will Keir Starmer have an epiphany about what a woman is when he uh, finally becomes prime minister? Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Just Sandra. on Keir Starmer. Uh, kind. Um, no, I, I, don't think, I don't think Starmer will. I mean, it, it's been fascinating on that question, watching Starmer and other senior Labour politicians um, go through the exercise of trying to answer the question, you know, what is a woman? Can can a woman have a penis? Can a, can a man <laughs> trying to have, square a, that circle. have a cervix? <laughs> and, you know, the tangles they get. I mean, it's almost like now a spectator sport, isn't it? They just line, <laughs> line them up and the next one has a bash and it's terrible and then the next one has a bash. And he, he obviously, um, he, he answered it once and it was terrible and then he obviously thought about it. Um, and about six weeks later, he was asked the same question again. And you could see he'd been laying awake at night trying to think of this <laughs> answer. And he said, and I, I can't remember the exact quote, but he said something like, um, look, I accept for, it was, it was, you know, can a woman have a penis, that, that, um, that question. And he said something like, look, I, I, I accept for the vast, vast majority of women in this country, <laughs> biology matters, but there's a small number of people um, for whom, you know, they're, they're transgender, blah, 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 blah. And you think, well, hold on a second. How can you just say biology only matters for a certain number of people? <laughs> <laughs> and actually, for, for a small minority of people, the, the rules of science and biology suddenly get set aside <laughs> and don't apply anymore. It is just completely incoherent. And, you know, I've, I've got absolutely, I've, I've been a member of the Labour Party for 28 years, I've got absolutely no problem with people shoving microphones under the noses of Labour Party politicians and asking that question again and again and again, because frankly, it highlights the absurdity of the position. So, <laughs> so to answer your question, I don't think he is going to have an opinion. It's, it's the new pint of a price of milk question. Yeah. Politicians want you to know that they don't know what a woman is rather than... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I think yeah. that I think the, the broader question is about psychology. What yeah. do you know? Do we need to think more about psychology in relation to the gender debate? Yeah. Andrew, have you got a view on this? I mean, we, we can't ultimately tell what goes on in people's heads as no. much as psychology well, has I mean, tried that's, to. That's why you. It doesn't really matter where it comes from, where these feelings of gender dysphoria come from. If you take the liberal approach, it's the best approach. It means that anyone can live their lives however they choose, dress however they want, call themselves whatever they want, uh, and and they just can't impose those ideas on other people. I could get married to a man and call him my husband. I can't demand that a, a, my Christian neighbor uses the phrase husband because that's that person's free speech, nothing to do with me. So it's simple, just, just take that liberal approach and it will work. As far as gender goes, of course, for a long time, uh, feminists made the case that gender was a wholly a social construct. Mm. You know, the reality is that it's it's a, it's a very complex uh, relationship between biological factors and social factors. And that's what we call gender, which is the manifestation 
of uh, performative traits, masculine, feminine, that kind of thing. And of course, you know, there is nothing innate about male uh, anatomy that means that boys like blue, you know, or girls like pink, you know, they, this, th those kind of things are very easily identifiable as social constructs. But there are also biological factors that means that boys are more predisposed, for example, to rough and tumble play in youth than girls are as well. So, so um, just having an acknowledgement of the reality of that. Gender is part, part biology, part socialization. Um, and there are also, and if you take the liberal view, it shouldn't matter how people choose to, uh, to, to go against typical societal norms surrounding gender roles. Uh, it shouldn't matter to any of us. Where it matters is when they start saying, my individual perception of myself must trump your human rights. That's the issue. I, I, just to add to that as well, because I do think part of the problem with this, and I think that is, the question kind of gets to grips of what is gender dysphoria? How do we understand it? How should it be dealt mm. with and all the rest of it? And the problem with the trans issue is it's now an umbrella which encapsulates all kinds of other people mm. as well who are put under the same umbrella. There's people who clearly, whether in youth or later on, experience this kind of, uh, again, alienation from what, they, what is their own biological sex and gender and so on. But then there's also this kind of whole array of fetishists who have just been welcomed into the into the party. Mm. I mean, it's it's obviously two completely different things. And yeah. a lot of the people who get um, kind of flushed out by these um, reports into individuals working at particular charities, getting up to all kinds of questionable business, they are quite clearly of a different kind of order. And then you've mm. got the non-binary thing, you know, the theys, the plurals, mm. um, who are people who I assume are just bored or something. I mean, it's obviously <laughs> different types of phenomena that we're dealing with. Um, and yet it all gets lumped together and it all gets, you can't talk about it. You just it's have to accept it. It's worth saying it, as well know? that that, uh, that you've outlined there has done a real disservice to trans people and trans rights. Mm. You know, whenever you see uh, some fetishist posting images of their them ejaculating in a woman's only space and boasting about how they can do this, that doesn't help trans rights, does it? It used to be the case that we've all known trans people and everyone out of a out of politeness and courtesy has uh, indulged in the fiction, the harmless fiction and said and used the pronouns that that person wanted or the name that that person wanted and no one ever had a problem with that. Well, now I know lots of people who do on principle. They will always use gender pronouns to denote biological sex and that's a hard and fast rule for them. It wasn't a, pr and I understand why people have reached that point, but that's not good for trans people, is it? Mm. Because it, it was working fine. And when you mm. in incorporate fetishism or to gynophilia mm -hmm. into trans or non-binary, which, mm -hmm. you know, which non-binary as an identity is in fact a reinforcement of ultra conservative gender stereotypes, because what you're saying is I don't fit into what it me traditionally means to be ma male or female. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's most of us actually, mm -hmm. you know, so um, it's really bad for trans people, this whole thing. And it, just not to bang on about, but they've even sort of welcomed in under the umbrella, people who are obviously just faking it for the sake of yeah, gaining of access to women's spaces. When you see those kind of stories of, you know, woman abuses five children, et cetera. And you think what's going on with our woman folk. I keep seeing these stories. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it's quite obvious. I don't believe for a second, this person yeah. has been harboring concerns about their gender identity. They exploited a loophole, which we, gave them. That's mm. exactly what's going on. And that obviously does no one any favours because of course that's going to generate a, a potential for a quite ugly backlash, which is surely the thing we want to avoid at all costs. Or, or you have someone like that Canadian teacher that people might have seen with the absolutely mm. giant oh porn star breasts. Yeah. And I mean, even on that particular case, I mean, one of the things that's just extraordinary about that is the fact that the school backs uh, mm. the teacher. And I think this is the way that, you know, tolerance, which many of us support has been hollowed out to become this kind of watery non-judgmentalism, <clears throat> which yeah. you don't actually make moral judgments and say, this is right and this is wrong. I mean, if you want to live your life that way, but there are actually boundaries and norms within society that have evolved and in many cases, you know, work. And that complete 
destruction of those is what has opened the door for so many of these people that are exploiting it. That's a good example, though, isn't it? That the man who wore the massive prosthetic breasts mm. to school, because you know it's perfectly reasonable for for a school to say we will defend a man's right to socially transition and wear a dress to work. But if you're wearing fetish gear as a teacher, mm. that mm. that should surely be a line, shouldn't mm. it? I don't think that's hard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I think, you know, the, the, the question the, the question is, to, to what extent should the rest of society be expected to abandon everything they have ever known mm. in the way of language and culture and science and biology and custom um, in order to, to indulge the, de- the demands of what is ultimately a very tiny group of people? I think that's the, that's the key point. People say, well, you know, it's, it's inclusive and so on. But Sometimes we do have to think about the the majority. Sometimes we do have to think, actually, the majority are being asked to set aside everything they've known and everything they've ever learned and everything that makes sense to them. Um, and, you know, if they don't do it, then then they're accused of being a, a particular phobic or they're accused of, of being bigoted. And it it's, goes back to the point that I made earlier. It's a society that in many respects is afraid to say no. Yeah. It's a society that is afraid to say, actually, on this occasion, do you know what? No, that is not a reasonable demand. We understand your position. We understand why you might ask for it. We understand, you know, you you don't see yourself necessarily as part of the, the mainstream for all sorts of reasons. And we'll, you know, we'll treat you with compassion and we'll do what we can. But we are not going to say to the rest of society, abandon everything that, that you've known. And we're a, we're a country, and particularly in public life, that is petrified of saying no. And, and we need to find the courage to start doing it, frankly. More questions? That one certainly got us talking. Uh, <laughs> yes, if people didn't hear that... Um, the woman in the audience has been banned from Twitter. It's kind of like a feeling of being unpersoned. You're cut off from all your networks. But the PayPal thing is still an even bigger escalation than that. And, you know, what can we do? Tom? No, I agree. I think it was when you had the Canadian truckers protest, mm. which mm. this really got hammered home. All of these donations, which had been raised on GoFundMe in particular, which were being directed to the truckers and all the rest of it. And then they just suddenly cut it off. They even said that if people didn't claim their refunds instantly, they would redirect it to other causes that they presumably considered more um, valuable. And Black Lives Matter was one of the causes they were going to give money it's, to. It's so transparently authoritarian and towards the end of a particular agenda. And I think you're right, it's so much more sinister in so many respects because it is just taking that unpersoning to another level because people could say well you're not on twitter but you can still you know uh, your right to free speech hasn't been abridged and all the rest of it i think that's often even that is quite questionable when you consider how big maybe less twitter but certainly platforms like facebook are but at the same time this is something very different and i don't know why people are so squeamish about the fact that there are points in which the the state has a role in making sure that corporate power isn't used to unperson and silence people. Mm. Um, why should uh, PayPal, which is is huge actually, I mean it's one of the it's in terms of its other competitors, I think it's as big as four or five of its competitors combined. Um, when the Free Speech Union had to shift away from it, they will have lost a significant portion of people who gave them money because they'd never be able to chase them up again. Whatever PayPal knew this when they when they yeah. um, put in these restrictions. So if you know, I don't think anyone should be squeamish. If we're in a situation where we're putting the, essentially the property rights of billionaires ahead of the free speech rights of ordinary people, our moral compass is severely screwed up. Mm. And oh, that, I think, it, should be uncontroversial. But why don't you build your own platform and <laughs> payments processor and the, social media landscape and metaverse? The thing is that, that's frustrating about it. <laughs> no, it, it, 
it, it's frustrating because on the one hand, it does seem that there is potential role of, of government in, in responding to, the, to this. But on the other hand, we have the kind of online harms bill where the yeah. government is wanting to fine, you know, social media companies for not removing content that's legal but harmful. Now, I think there is a conversation to be had around um, safeguarding in children, but for, for wider adults, mm. this is what the government is pushing. So whether or not they will actually be able to support free speech in this instance mm. is, is an open question. Definitely. Uh, another question. Uh, yeah, young man there. So how has society progressed from the point where we were essentially chemically castrating and oppressing gay people to the point where LGBT is now part of everyday life, part of the curriculum, part of the, you know, celebrity set? You see it everywhere. What's, I mean... Clearly, there's a point at which that a lot of that progress is quite important. I would hope people well, that's would the, agree. Well, I would say um, that the move from not chemically castrating gay people is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I think that's great, which is why I'm, <laughs> I'm so disappointed that uh, LGBT activists are doing it again. Yeah. I suppose. So um, I think we have to be very, very wary of that. The um, When, I mean, you're talking about footballers wearing the rainbow colours and all the rest of this stuff. Um, it's utterly pointless for football players in this country to signal in that way because we have equal rights as gay people in this country. There isn't a problem. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that homophobia or anti-gay sentiment has, has been eliminated. It definitely hasn't. But I mean, uh, the, the point is that uh, it would help maybe if those football players did that in Qatar. That would make sense. Uh, why is it that corporations fly their uh, L, uh, progress pride flag during the month of pride everywhere. I mean, the, the, the high street is littered with it. It's it's grotesque because uh, it's really ugly just aesthetically. And, and, you know, I would have thought gay people in particular would respond badly to that. Um, but And yet, you know, when you see their Middle Eastern corporate mm. equivalents, oh, that flag isn't there. I wonder why that is. If you actually cared about this stuff as a corporation, you'd fly the flag where it should be flown, right? Because the rainbow flag used to mean something. You used to actually help gay people. When I saw it outside a pub, I thought, okay, well, that's a safe place. That's okay. I'm not, people aren't going to beat me up for holding someone's hand. But now I see that progress pride flag and I assume the opposite. I think actually this is a hostile place uh, for gay people. So, you know, I just think, you know, where were, the, where were these corporations before the age of consent was equalized? Where were they before <laughs> section 28 was repealed or where there was no equal marriage? You know, they didn't say a thing and now it's really safe and easy. They, they do. So I think when we're talking about progress, let's not tie it in with avaricious corporations. They don't give a damn about gay people. I suppose the cowardice cuts both ways, doesn't it? Because you don't want to be the corporation that doesn't have the progress right. pride flag in the West, but obviously you'd never stick your neck out in um, well, why advocating. Not? <laughs> why not fly those flags in Saudi Arabia? Why not? Well, good Do question. It. You know, if you really believe in it, I think that's that, that's the point. And the you know the thing that irritates me is the way that so many people on the left have joined up with the corporations and see them as allies. Without, I mean, woke capitalism is the worst kind, as as far as I'm concerned, because it's not <laughs> done from a point of principle. Mm. It's genuinely not. You know, when 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 the corporations and the boards of directors are making these calculations, they're thinking what it, what does it mean in terms of the image of the company? What does it mean in terms of profit? What does it mean in terms of appealing to a particular constituency of society? We'll be seen as the good guys, won't we? And I think that creates a ratchet effect where one corporation does one thing, whether it's Ben and Jerry's, you know, telling us whether or not Liz Truss should be Prime Minister of, of Great Britain and then you know, another corporation jumps on a particular bandwagon and it's it's almost like they're forcing each other to do the next thing. And and then I think that's where the whole thing um, becomes very extreme. And I think another example, I mean, we talked about the, the Middle East and, you know, corporations not flying the, the, the pride flag in the Middle East. Another example was 
uh, when Arsenal, the um, the Arsenal player Ozil, when he um, talks about the persecution of the Uyghur Muslims in China, and yeah. because of China, uh, because of Arsenal's interests in China, they were very quick to shut him down and say he speaks for himself. This is not uh, an Arsenal football club view. In other words, make your on your own. And I think that's the key point. Where they see their profits being hit, then all of a sudden the principles are abandoned, which means they're not principles in the first place, yeah. doesn't it? And it, and it also this woke. Uh, capitalism it empowers them over their own workers yeah. as well this is one of the most pernicious effects of it is that on the one hand it's very easy to rather than listen to uh, the people who works for you demands around pay and working conditions you know the whole emphasis is we're going to give you allyship training today mm. and all the rest of it mm. all of that being brought up but it's basically another means through which people can be punished in the workplace for their opinions I mean that's what especially when left wingers cheer on this work capitalism they're essentially cheering on bosses' rights. You can get rid of someone, you can reprimand someone, it can create a weapon that can easily be used in a particular workplace in a, in a way that really breaks up workplace solidarity and all the mm -hmm. rest of it. Yeah. Um, so it has nothing but a pernicious impact. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by this kind of devil's bargain that exists between the woke left and woke capitalism. At what point are they going to realise that they're not sincere, as Paul is saying, but also yeah. this weapon can be and, very easily turned against. And, and what we don't see often as well is, you know, we, we know when J.K. Rowling gets uh, attacked, we know when John Cleese gets attacked and, and other people who don't follow the woke orthodoxy, and they've got the wherewithal mm. and the money and the status to withstand it. What we don't often see is the people at the other end, people like the, the woman there who's been banned from Twitter, and probably, mm. you know, very few people actually know about that, and she was banned from Twitter simply for expressing a genuinely held view. And the people, and I, I do research into this from time to time, and the Free Speech Union are great at it, where um, the people who have been sacked or disciplined in their workplace for, for saying something that, frankly, 5, 10, 15 years ago, people wouldn't have batted an eyelid at. And, and this is the key thing for me, that age-old social and cultural norms are mm. being abandoned at such a rapid pace that, you know, you can, you can argue for something now um, which, as I say, was seen as absolutely part of the political discourse recent, you know, reasonably recently, but now um, turns you into a non-person, effectively. Mm. There, was, there was the case, some of you may know about it, where um, I think her name was Maureen Morgan. She worked for a housing association in South London. Um, and she stood for stood for mayor for the Christian party, for the mayoralty. Um, she was a candidate in the borough of Newham. And amongst all the other things in a leaflet about, you know, cleaner environment and build more houses and all the rest of it, she said, I believe in the traditional form of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, fine, you can disagree with Maureen Morgan over that. You can have a debate with her when she comes to your doorstep. If you disagree, by all means, take it up with her. She was sacked from her housing association. Mm. She was sacked from her housing association simply for arguing in a democratic election. Yeah arguing for her personal belief in the traditional form of marriage. Now, if people had said to us 10, 15, 20 years ago that that situation would happen and very few people would care about it and the left wouldn't see her as, as uh, you know, a cause to, to defend, trade unions wouldn't voice any sort of opinion about it, I think we would have been flabbergasted at that. But that's the situation that we're in and that's how mm. quickly I think things are changing. Mm. I think there is also just a point about, on the point that was made um just a moment on a kind of overcorrection. So I think we should celebrate uh, the gains that we've made in terms of civil rights. But there is um, a problem nowadays with activists almost suggesting that things are as bad, if not worse, mm. than they were before. And you don't just see this on the, the question of, of the trans issue, but you also see it on the question of race. And actually, we need to be able to distinguish between 
past and present, um, a lot of progress has been made and we should celebrate that. That's not to say that there aren't still issues to be dealt with across um, the board, but I do think that we should celebrate the, the progress that we've been on as a society. You know, Robin D'Angelo makes the claim in her book, White Fragility, that um, the systemic racism of today's society is worse than Jim Crow. Because she says that at least Jim Crow was out in the open and and, mm. uh, and this is now hidden, so yeah. hidden, in fact, that most people don't see it. Yeah. Joe, Joe, <laughs> Joe, Joe Biden has made a similar point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's worth yeah. reiterating. The president of the United States mm. has made a similar point to say that racism is worse now than it was under segregation. It's just objectively it's, not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we should be able to say that and call it out for its absurdity. Yeah. Right. Uh, let's take some more questions. I'm conscious of um, ignoring people behind me. Um, how do we, the, the question for listeners at home um, was how do we prevent um, this sort of institutional takeover of, of these ideas, whether um, it's critical race theory or trans ideology? You, you elect Kemi Badenoch, um, but oh, they, they didn't do it. Okay. Um, well, it's kind of, um, it's so embedded, it's so deeply embedded that it's kind of, I mean, you mentioned that the guy asking the question mentioned this fund that you can get at the university for gender expression, but it's so nebulous. You may as well, I, I would advise that you take him up on that. Just say, because there's that, that, I saw someone online identifying using pronouns toy and toy self, and, um, <laughs> and she was obsessed with toys. So I would say, get the 50 quid from the university and buy, buy yourself a, a Monopoly set or something, you know, like, <laughs> like, but, but you don't even have to do anything, you know, it's yeah. so, no, but it's so ingrained. This is, it's all so deeply ingrained to the extent, I mean, we were talking about Twitter and the, the, the fact that they kick people off for misgendering. Uh, well, recently, Surrey Police chipped in saying because someone misgendered a child rapist, right? Yeah. Well, look, we use people's pronouns out of courtesy. I don't think child rapists necessarily deserve courtesy, right? So, um, but the, but it's, so, if it's in the police and if it's mm. in the civil service, absolutely everywhere, I think the government has complete, all of this has happened under the Tory government, by the way, 12 years of mm. Tory rule and all of this has taken place and they've done absolutely nothing. And they d keep talking about this war on woke. They're enabling it. They're part of the problem. They need to actually stand up and say no. And Kemi Badenoch did do this in Parliament. She said the teaching of critical race theory as fact. Mm. It's fi Look, critical race theory is everywhere and it's, it's, um, it's uh, an aspect of our society. And therefore, teaching it about it in schools makes sense to me. Talking about, you know, why we have this thing that's taken over all of our institutions, even though it's built on sand. Why don't we talk about that? But teaching it as though it's real. Yeah, as yeah. though it's a, it, it's it's a fact. It's the equivalent of teaching about you know the, uh, creationism. Or creationism, yeah, yeah. exactly. So so it is illegal. It is against the law, as was outlined by Kemi Badenoch. So, but and yet schools and local authorities are still pushing it. They don't care about the law. So it's just the government need to be tougher. Your, I think your point about you know it's happened under twelve years of the Tories is a really really important one because sometimes we forget that because often. We hammer the left for it and, you know, not without reason, because we know that, that the left have traditionally been big drivers for it. Um, but the idea that for 12 years the Tories have been trying to hold back the tide and fighting against it and withstanding it is just crap, frankly. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff was enabled, particularly during the Cameron years when mm -hmm. he was determined to show the uh, the Tory party as kind of hyper-progressive and the heir to Blair and, and that sort of thing. And I think that, you know, when I hear the occasional minister... Tory minister come out and say, yeah, we need to, we need to fight the war on woke. You, you do kind of think, well, where the bloody hell have you been for the last 12 years? But I think the key, you know, to, to go back to the, the question, I think the key point we need to, to, to understand is, look, 
the, these people are ultimately in a minority. The people who believe in this radical woke agenda are not in touch with mainstream Britain and are in a minority. Sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking, you know, they have so much power and, and so much influence without realising there are more of us than there are of them. And, and you know, it, it comes back to, as I said before, old-fashioned backbone. That's what it yeah, takes sometimes. Yeah. People standing up and saying, <laughs> actually, this is wrong. It's illiterate. I'm not going along with it and I'm going to challenge it. It won't mean anything unless the government stand up. I mean, this is why, to give a very specific example, uh, the recording of non-crime hate incidents, which by the way, no one would have believed was possible 15 years ago, but is now regular. The Home Office, Priti Patel, instructed the College of Policing to stop teaching police to record non-crime because that's not their job, is it? Uh, It's the opposite. (laughs) Um, And they just ignored it. And they carried on doing it. And then there was the High Court ruling in the Harry Miller case. And then the judiciary are saying, you've got to stop this. It's not lawful. And they just carried on doing it. And now they've fudged it and just changed the language a bit. So no, the government has to just scrap the College of Policing because it's not fit for purpose. It is that simple. Well, I think one thing that this gets into as well, because you do have what is often a slightly confected debate, more so in America, but it's creeping in over here, which is, oh, you're everything that you say that we are because you're trying to ban critical race theory. Mm. You're trying to censor critical race theory and all the rest of it. I don't, any sensible critic of all this stuff, I don't see anyone advocating for that. They're not going to run around universities pulling Derek Bell off of the shelf and all the rest of it. That's not (laughs) what they're actually talking about. I think the problem is, and you see it in the university context definitely, is that this isn't about discussion or education. It's about indoctrination and it's also about essentially political discrimination. Mm. The number of courses you're now starting to see at various universities where if you don't pass this course, which is effectively a uh, religious test, do you agree with all of these positions? And if you don't, you don't pass. That surely is not something that should be allowed to take place. (laughs) And it's fundamentally different from saying, we are not allowing you to discuss these ideas. We are not allowing academics to explore these ideas or we're not allowing anyone to hold a discussion about these matters. It's fundamentally different, but there is this kind of phony war that's going on to a certain extent about saying, oh, you're exactly as censorious as you claim that we are and all the rest of it. I think we've got time for one more question, so it better be an absolute cracker. Um, <laughs> no pressure. Let's have the- so the question is, what can students do from a, from a first-year Trinity College Dublin? Because there's some murmurs of dissent, which sounds good, yeah. but they need to be... <laughs> Maybe those murmurs need to be a bit louder. I yeah. think that might be the answer. I mean, I think it really does tell us, you know, that where, where we're at as a society, where university, the place which is meant to be, you know, a vibrant uh, culture of free speech and discussion is actually the the forum to which young people are actually finding that, that they're not actually having the opportunity to have a vibrant intellectual life and, and explore a range of ideas. And I think I think it is very true that there are a lot of young people Um, out there that do care about these issues but don't have the forum don't have the space and don't have the kind of support and network to be able to actually uh, do the things that university is there for and I think that's why um, and this is kind of talked about throughout the day about organizing and actually you know starting free speech societies you know joining groups creating groups of your own because I do think that that culture is not something that can be kind of imposed from the top down. You have to work on it and actually um, find those academics and other people that want those same things. And I think they're out there. I recently heard someone say that, you know, the university is almost returning to its original function for training, you know, religious clerics. (laughs) 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 Uh, Andrew, you know, the university context, what uh, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, I find whenever I'm speaking on university that actually the younger people are really great and, Mm. and, and, not not necessarily agreeing with me on everything, but willing to talk about it and be challenged and everything. I did a talk at Aberystwyth University. Uh, I was invited by the International Politics Department and the the young people were fantastic. And it was the department, it was the academics who had a problem with it. The people of my age and older 
who were saying we're not going to support this because you know any he's anti woke and therefore that's against our diversity policy and whatever. They didn't know what I was going to say. They weren't interested. So and they refused to publicize the event. So I don't think you know Paul mentioned a very key point about how this is a minority, right? Uh, the more in common initiative estimates it's around thirteen percent of the country that would be put into that woke uh, progressive bracket. Mm. Um, and that means that they're a minority in all generations. This is often misrepresented as a, uh, a case of the old failing to adapt to the norms, a conflict between generations. Actually, the data tells us it's not. It's a minority within younger generations as well. It's just that they're more cowed and more scared of speaking up. They've got more to lose because they've got a whole career ahead of them. So that's yeah. the situation. So actually, I think, yeah, well, the hope is in younger people, but they just need to be louder because there's safety in numbers, right? Mm. Mm. Oh. A long, long time since I was a student and um, university life's very alien to me, but I've, I've been a trade union activist and campaigner for many years and I would just simply, my simple advice would be organise. There's no substitute for organising. Things don't happen unless you organise and get active and work at it on any particular course and be brave. Organise and be brave and there'll come a time in the future where, where you look back and, and we're glad that you did that. And just to add to that, I think um, definitely being brave at organising, all of that is so crucially important. I think the other thing that's worth remembering is not only do you have most people on your side, you also do kind of have genuine liberal anti-racist, um, anti-sexist values on your side. That's whenever we criticise, particularly uh, everyone around this table, I'm sure, uh, critical race theory, gender ideology, any of these things, it's not because um, we're deep cultural conservatives and are terrified of something new. It's because these are reactionary movements. These are the means through which racism is being peddled, through which homophobia is being peddled, misogynistic stereotypes, you name it. This is the new means through which these ideas are being peddled in the mainstream. And that's why I think most people don't have any truck with them. And that's why, to coin a phrase, when you go out there and make that argument, you do have, his you are on the right side of history in that sense. <laughs> Even though I do hate that phrase, it's important to remember that, I think. Well, that's all from us. Thank you so much to everyone who's come to this special live edition of the Spike Podcast. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com audioboom, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.